You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now here's Doug Robbins. Well, good morning, 1030. Good to see you. How are we doing? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Awesome. So uh, in case you're new, we've been in this series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And one of the things that we've seen that it's impossible to be uh, spiritually mature and emotionally immature at the same time. Have you ever known that person that's very religious and everything, but they're really a little on the petty side and a little emotionally immature? And my thanks to Aaron Dockery, who a couple of weeks ago started out our series, helping us to see how we could uh, be healed of the wounds of our past and put our past in our rearview mirror. And then last week, I'm grateful for Carlos Maestas, who helped us see how much of our emotional issues are beneath the surface. It's kind of like uh, an iceberg. You only see a small part of the iceberg on top of the surface, but much of what's going on in our lives is beneath the surface that can't be seen. And if you would like to take a look at your emotional and spiritual maturity, we have an assessment online at citychurchdowntown.com. You can go to that page, take the emotional health assessment and see where you're at. But today I wanted to start out with the story of the ancient prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah had this great victory when he went into a spiritual battle with the prophets of Baal. And here's the challenge that Elijah issued to the prophets of Baal. He said, guys, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make this big stack of wood, and we'll each put an offering on top of the pile of wood. And we'll each pray to our God separately, and whoever's God is able to bring down fire to burn up the offering and the pile of wood is the legit God. So he said, I'll let you guys go first. So the prophets of Baal, they put their offering on top of the pile of wood, and they started chanting, and they started uh, praying to their false god, Baal, and nothing happened. So they ratcheted things up a notch. They started dancing to Baal and uh, calling upon him to bring fire down on this offering, and still nothing happened. And so then they cut themselves, and they carried on all afternoon trying to get Baal to burn up the offering, and nothing happened. So at this point, Elijah starts doing a little trash talking, right? And he's like, where's your God? Did he go pee-pee? You know? This is actually in the Bible. So um, nothing happened. So Elijah stepped up like a champ, like Kawhi Leonard coming in for the dunk, and he places the offering on top of the pile of wood, and then he takes water and pours it over the offering, over the pile of wood, creating a moat of water around that stack of wood there. And in a very simple and humble way, he offers a prayer to the living God of heaven who had instructed him to do this challenge. And fire immediately came from heaven, consuming the offering and the whole pile of wood. It even sucked up all the water in the moat around the pile of wood. And the prophets of Baal were taken out. This was a great victory to the glory of God, establishing Elijah as the prophet of God. But here's the problem with what happened. The queen in power at this time was Jezebel, who was the Kim Kardashian petty kind of uh, queen squatting on the throne. And she was angry because she was a Baal follower. And she sent her thugs to go kill Elijah. And so now all of a sudden, Elijah, who had seen this great victory in the name of God, he'd seen God bring down fire from heaven to consume this offering. Now he finds himself 
on the run. He went from hero to zero in a matter of hours, and he's running for his life from these thugs of Queen Jezebel. And he's thinking to himself, I need a word from God. God, you're the one that seems to be taking care of things here. What am I going to do? They are going to kill me, God. And he stops just for a moment and still to hear from God. And I want to take you to their conversation in 1 Kings 19, verse 11. Elijah stood there, and the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. And you know, God whispers to you and I in the silence. So Elijah got a word from God in the midst of the silence. And what is that area of your life or that issue you're dealing with where you need to hear from God or get a word from him about what you're to do, how he wants to instruct you? Well, perhaps you'll find him there in the gentle, quiet place. God is often found in the midst of silence space, and Sabbath. Let me repeat that. You will hear from God in the midst of silence, space, and Sabbath. I'm going to say that again, and I'm going to have you repeat that big idea with me using the sign language I just showed you. Um, and I know it's a little cheesy, but maybe you'll remember it if you do the little hand motions along with it. So let's try it together. You ready? I'll speak the words and you do the motions. Here we go. God is in silence, space, and Sabbath. Silence, space, and Sabbath. We've already seen in the story of Elijah how God was heard in the midst of silence, but let's look at space. Now, when you read a book, you look at the words and their margins around the page, right? Those margins are space to make a better reading experience. When you drive your car, there's a median in the middle and there's a shoulder on the side of the road. That's a space to make for a better driving experience. Those of you that are in business, there is a margin between your cost of doing business and where you're profitable. That is a space to make business better. God designed you and I to work with appropriate space in our lives. Look at what Jesus said in, uh, or what Jesus did in Luke 5.15. It says, despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster. The vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases, but Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. You see what Jesus is doing there? Even God incarnate as the Messiah had to create space. He was healing people and ministering people, but he realized he wouldn't be good for any people if he didn't create space to go back with God in silence, solitude, and prayer. And we have a lot of workplace stress in our lives, and we have hectic paces that we live by. We have these time-saving devices in our smartphones and the like, but these factors in our culture have caused what the experts are calling overload syndrome. 
It's an actual disease now that uh, people are being diagnosed with. It's referenced in a book by Richard Swenson called Margin, Restoring Emotional, Physical, Financial, and Time Reserves to Overloaded Lives. And in this research, overload is described as when our load exceeds our limits, when our reserves are depleted, yet we continue to make withdrawals. When we spend 120% of what we have, whether money, time, or energy, margin, on the other hand, is the opposite of overload. If we have space between our load and our limits, we have margin. Margin is rare. Overload is the new norm. Now, we all understand that there are going to be times in our lives where there's going to be short-term overload, right? If you're an accountant during tax season, you're going to have short-term overload. If you're a student during final exams, you're going to have short-term overload. But you can't live like that all the time, uh, else you'll go crazy. So uh, overload, what it does is it makes you and I impatient, doesn't it? And so McDonald's became the global fast food juggernaut, not because it was good food, not even because it's cheap food, but because it's what? Fast food. We want it fast, right? I mean, McDonald's was created so that families could eat, going through the drive-thru, eat in minivans as nature intended, you know? And we find ourselves being uh, impatient, and this surfaces in me when I become what we call a sentence finisher. You ever know a sentence finisher? It's like people don't talk fast enough. I sometimes feel like I'm talking to that cartoon sloth, you know? It's like, today, spit it out. Come on. I finish their sentence for them to get them to move the conversation along when I'm on overload. And it also manifests in me uh, when I'm in traffic and I've got two lanes that I can choose from and I'm sizing up the cars that are in those lanes, right? If there are two cars, I'm not gonna pick that one. I'll pick the lane with one car. But if there's just one car in each lane, I have to make a choice. And so in my mind, I'm sizing up the vehicles based on the make and model. And if there's a like a 20-something guy or a high school guy in a sports car, that's my guy. I'm not getting behind the old lady who is in the Merc Cruiser, okay? I want to get behind the guy who's going to get me through that intersection faster. And then my overload and impatience um, also comes into play when I go to HEB to get groceries, you know, because I'm, I'm looking at the lines, you know, and not only do I look at how many people are in the different lines, but I'm looking at what's in their baskets, okay? And I'm only looking, I'm inventorying what's in their baskets at the HEB, and then I look at the checkers too. Hey, checkers are an important part of the equation. I mean, you got to figure out which checker can get those things over the scanner fastest and which one can type in the produce the fastest. And when I get to the end of the line, I finally get to the checker. I tell the checker almost every time, you won. I looked at all, you're the fastest one. And they, they're like, yes, I got the impatient guy with the eyebrows through the crowd faster. This is overload. But God, look, God is in silence, space, and Sabbath. So let's talk about Sabbath, which in the scriptures is uh, this day of rest. Now, we wear these seven-day work weeks and sleepless nights as like a badge of honor. But if we follow God, if we follow Christ, we ought to consider seven-day work weeks as an embarrassment not as a badge of honor. But you know what we do is we say, well, we work so much, that makes me significant. We find our identity in the fact that we overwork because we find our, uh, our significance in 
that work. Now, there are various relationships that people have to a Sabbath rest kind of mentality. There are slackers and there are workaholics. Okay, let me talk to the slackers just for a minute. I mean, I know it was hard for you to put down your phone in Pokemon Go to come into church today, right? Slackers don't need more time playing Xbox. Slackers don't need another handout from the church or another government welfare check. Slackers need to get off there, and I am thinking a cuss word right now, God knows it, but slackers need to get off their bottoms and get a job. If you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, some boss like who's tired of slackers working for him is like, yeah, clap for Pastor Doug right now. <laughs> if your life like is a page and there are no words on the page, there's only margin there, you know you're a slacker. It's nothing. It's time to get up and work. But there are some who are workaholics and you find your identity in your job and you never take a day of Sabbath, I'm asking you to consider slowing down. God designed you for the rhythms of rest. Now, not only are there slackers and workaholics, but some people, when they learn about Sabbath, because they're rule followers, they become legalistic about Sabbath. You ever know a rule follower? They're the people in your office that love that human resources manual. And they love to uh, create all these rules for everything. And they have an interpretation for every rule. And they create rules upon rules and rules about how to follow the rules. Well, Jesus' contemporaries had a bunch of those rule followers. They loved the manuals on how everybody is to behave. And they created rules upon rules and rules about how you're to apply the rules and even the rule documents. So they were Pharisees. And one day, Jesus and his disciples stopped by this grain field uh, to get a little snack. It happened to be on the Sabbath day. And the disciples were uh, grabbing these little heads of grain and getting a little snack, kind of an ancient time granola bar, right? I mean, they're just getting a little snack to get them through the day. And the Pharisees, the rule followers, came by that day and they said, ah, ah. Jesus, we caught your guys. They're working on the Sabbath. They're harvesting grain on the Sabbath. And that is not allowed. That's not in our rule book. And Jesus says, well, haven't you guys read the Old Testament of the Scriptures where David and his men had to eat some of the special holy bread that was in the temple to survive? And then he went on to say this. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, hey, God made the Sabbath to serve you, not for you to serve some nitpicky rule book, you know? And then after Jesus spoke these words to him, he actually healed the guy's withered hand, and that really infuriated him that someone would have a better life on the Sabbath day because Jesus did the work of healing there. Now, let me break down what was happening in this story. Jesus is trying to communicate that Sabbath is his gift from God. If you look at the word Sabbath, it's the word minutia. In the Greek, not minutia, 
but it's minutia, which means peace, harmony, happiness, no strife. Sabbath is a blessed day of rest, restoration, and healing. And the Pharisees had a problem in their system of interpreting the scriptures. And let me show you how. What happens, okay, you're reading the Bible, you create all these rules about how to apply it. What happens when one of your interpretations contradicts with another one, what do you do? Now, here's an example of this related to the Sabbath. Little Jewish boys in that day were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Yet, Sabbath rules said in that day that you could not cut on the Sabbath. So what are you gonna do if uh, you're born, your, your eighth day after you were born was on the Sabbath day because people weren't allowed to cut but you were supposed to be circumcised on that day, what would you do as a parent? I know what the kid's gonna vote for. It's like the little boys are like, let's go with Sabbath on this day, okay? But they had a problem. Well, what Jesus taught was that you always lean in the direction of the interpretation that leads toward the preservation of life. Jesus is about the preservation of life. And if you have to work on the Sabbath day to preserve human life, then you let go of your legalism and you work towards saving life. If you're constantly violating Sabbath to make more money, stop. The money is not worth it because the overworking is killing you. Richard Stevens, who's a cancer researcher at the University of Connecticut, found a link between sleep deprivation and the risk of cancer. Then there was the University of Pennsylvania study that showed people awake for 19 hours scored worse on performance tests and alertness scales than rested people who were legally drunk. So in other words, you're better off to drive drunk. You're safer driving drunk than you are. By the way, that wasn't permission for some of you, okay? You're better off to drive drunk than you are to drive after a lack of sleep, according to the research. Now, some people are able to work sleep or rest into their daily schedules, which I think is interesting. So uh, I, I went on several trips down to Brazil and we were doing some work down there. And when I went to Brazil, uh, the thing that was interesting to me, it's kind of like Mexico in that they stopped for a siesta from noon to about two o'clock. And it was just so odd for me as an American, you know, I grew up, we don't stop during the middle of the day and they would stop. Uh, people would go home from work. Uh, kids and teachers would go home from school and they would have a leisurely lunch with their families. And then they would take a siesta, take a little nap. And then they would come back and finish their day refreshed. And I gotta be honest with you about my American arrogance because what was going through my mind was these poor, lazy, silly, ignorant people. I mean, <laughs> who has time to shut down the whole city just so people can sit around and take a nap? But it dawned on me what these Brazilian people had that I didn't have. They had silence, space, and Sabbath. Not too long after getting back from one of those Brazil trips, I took a trip to Eastern Europe and we were ministering there. I was on my way back. I was scheduled to teach here at City Church downtown. 
that Sunday, the morning I would get back and I thought to myself, great, I can just make the most of my time while I'm on the airplane. I can make sure my talk's put together. When I get there, I'll give my talk, I'll be good to go. And uh, at that time we had three services. I stood up to give my talk during those three services and I was so jet lagged and depleted. My speech was slurring and my teaching was no good for anyone. People were leaving. Why is your pastor drunk in church? I mean, what's going on here? Perhaps I needed to learn something from my Brazilian brothers and sisters about silence, space, and Sabbath. See? Now, the greatest rest that God offers you and I is not just the physical or emotional rest, but it's a soul rest that the scriptures teach us about. The great St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And so if you go back to Jesus' day, people who wanted to follow one of the great rabbis had to be willing to take on that particular rabbi's yoke. A yoke, as you'll see in the picture, was just a wooden device that was placed on oxen so they could pull a cart or carry a burden or a load for someone And so if you were going to take on the yoke of a particular rabbi, it meant that you were going to carry the load or apply the interpretation of that rabbi of the scriptures and live that out. So if that rabbi was one of those rule-following rabbis that loved to create this long list of rules, you were up a creek, and that was the case with many of them in that day. And so the people of that day couldn't even remember all the many, many rules they were supposed to apply, let alone live them all out. And this was the group of Jesus, uh, group that Jesus wanted to encourage when he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, and Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my what? Yoke upon you. And let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. And so what Jesus is teaching there, he's not just saying you need to get physical and emotional rest, but he's saying, I want to give you rest for your souls. Are you tired of trying to follow all the rules, all of which you don't even know or remember? He's saying, get rid of that old yoke and take on the new yoke. Take on the yoke of the gospel. Look, someone here today was brought to this room in order to get rid of an old yoke. And I know what you're thinking in your mind. Some of you are thinking, I'm coming to this church because, you know, at least I can wear shorts and flip-flops and I'm trying to be a better person And if I can learn to be a better person here at this church, then if I'm a good enough person, then God is going to accept me. That is the old yoke. you got to throw that old yoke away and take on the new yoke of grace that says God loves you because you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and Jesus took the yoke upon himself and you just receive that as a gift and rest in your soul. Others of you are thinking this. You know, Pastor Doug, I sinned this week. I know I did some stuff that was a sin because my grandma and the priest and everybody told me it was a sin. So I did that stuff and I haven't gone to confession yet. And if I died right now, 
I've not gone to confession yet, and I would go to hell if I died right now, but if I can get in for confession, then, then I'll be okay because God will accept me. Eh, no, that is the old yoke. The new yoke of the gospel says, I just come to God once and for all, believing that Jesus carried my sin on the cross, and I just believe that, and I rest in his love for me. Look, some of you grew up in evangelical backgrounds where you tried and tried and tried and tried to make Jesus your Lord. He's already the Lord of the universe. He doesn't need to make you to make him anything. But you've thought, hey, I am not making Jesus Lord enough of my life, and so I can never be secure and know I have a relationship with God because I've not made him Lord in every single tiny facet of my life. Eh, no, that is the old yoke. You don't have to sit there and worry. Some of you are hanging on to this salvation flower is what I call it. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. No, here's the thing. When you take on the new yoke of the gospel, you simply believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and there's only one petal on the flower and that petal says, he loves me. And when you take on the new yoke of the gospel, when you're not dependent upon your own ability to carry that yoke, and you're dependent upon Jesus' ability on the cross to carry the burden, the weight, the punishment for your sin, that's when you can say like the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. And when you can come to Jesus who says of you, if you believed in him and his cross, he says, you're in my hand, I'm in the Father's hand, and there ain't no one that can snatch you out of my hand. You can't even wiggle out of my hand and get out of there with your sin. Look, you can take on the new yoke of the gospel and rest in peace knowing that he loves you. Yeah. So let's bow for prayer because this is why God brought someone here today. And as we bow before the Lord, I just want you in your own heart and mind, if you would like to take on the new yoke for the first and only needed time that you need to do so, just pray in your own heart, just between you and God, saying, God, look, I know I've sinned. That's not new information for me. And I know that sin is a huge problem to you. But right now, the best I know how, I choose to believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died there to take the penalty for my sin. And God, my future obedience to you will not be because I have to obey to receive a relationship with you, but my obedience will be out of gratitude, knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Father, thank you for who, those who just prayed to begin a relationship with you today. I pray that you would help them on that journey. And there are others of us here who are overloaded right now because we violated Sabbath. And it's not that you're up in heaven with a big stick waiting to whack us the first time we miss a Sabbath day. But we thank you for the gracious gift of Sabbath that you have provided for us. And we're choosing today to apply the gift of Sabbath by taking 
a 24-hour period of time to rest. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.